I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, infant baptism. The question we've got today is, is infant baptism actually in the Bible? Um, Does the Bible tell us whether or not we should baptize infants? And we're going to go through all those passages that talk about something related to this or in some way bear on this issue today. Um, So track with me here. I'm going to give you the whole format on exactly what we're going to cover in this video. So it's kind of like five points in order. So here they are. Uh, Number one, we're going to go through um, who did get baptized and under what conditions or who was baptism for in the New Testament, specifically looking at passages. Then we're going to, for number two, we're going to look at household baptisms, that is passages in the scripture that talk about whole households being baptized. And the question we have is, does this give us a case for infant baptism? Uh, Then we'll look at uh, probably one of the stronger cases for infant baptism there is, which is the the case, or I should, maybe I should say, I say stronger, it's like, you know, prominent, well-respected teachers I respect uh, put forward this case. The idea is that baptism is kind of parallel to circumcision in some ways. And since circumcision is for infants, baptism should be for infants too. So we'll look at that for number three. Number four, we'll just look at some other verses people use that are kind of uncategorized, but they weigh in and they definitely are important to talk about. And then five, I'll give you a brief word on church history. And some people try to win this whole argument with just church history. And I'm going to give a brief word, kind of a warning against that sort of reasoning. And then we'll go to your guys' questions with whatever time we have left in the Q&A. So it's kind of like a, a big thing we're doing today. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. This is the Tuesday live stream I do on theology and apologetics every Tuesday at 5 p.m. right here on YouTube. It goes up later on Facebook and podcast and all that. Um, And uh, I hope that uh, it's a blessing to you guys. The goal here is to help you to learn how to think biblically about everything, to learn to know and defend the Christian worldview. That's that's the idea. And so um, I hope it's a huge blessing and I'm excited to get into this topic today. Something I've had on my list for quite a while, um, but now we're going to dig in. Uh, Here's what you need to know going into this conversation. Lots of people are on both sides of this issue. It is an in-house issue that Christians have with other Christians who are true believers on both sides, which means while this is an important issue, see when I say in-house issue, some people think I mean unimportant. I don't mean that. I I just mean it's not divisive. I don't want to divide on this topic. I'm not going to disfellowship with somebody because of this issue. Um, so we're going to do this in a spirit that says, hey, um, we can agree to disagree on this issue and it's okay. Now, don't get me wrong. There's other issues I don't agree to disagree, right? Like it is not an in-house issue. It's on the gospel of Christ. It's on how we are saved. And it's something where you cannot compromise um, and still call yourself a Christian. But this is not one of those issues. So it matters but it's not essential. All right. Now, um, if you guys have questions, you can put those in the, in the live chat and I'll try to get to those at the end. Just put a capital Q on your live chat. Um, and I, but I always try to front load all the, all the teaching content first so that those who are watching later can find this video and audio to be really fruitful for them. So here we go. Um, my contention is, and I'll say it right up front. I'm not gonna do that thing. I kind of get irritated by or people pretend to be on the fence and they talk about an issue, but they're really not on the fence, but they're pretending to be on the fence so they can look objective that I find personally a little irritating. Um, so my contention, all my cards on the table is this is not biblical, that I, I do not think infant baptism is, is supported by the Bible. Um, the Bible does not directly declare not to do it, nor does it directly declare to do it, but that the Bible 
taking it consistently, taking the teaching consistently from the New Testament and applying it to the issue of infant baptism, it seems to indicate this is not something that we're supposed to do. So I'm going to build that case now. Um, Starting with, starting with the first question, part one of my five part, six part video here. Part one, here we go. Um, Who was supposed to be baptized in the New Testament? Like what's baptism for? This is a good question to ask. If we don't have a direct verse, which we don't, that says baptize infants or don't baptize infants, well then we have to ask about what baptism is. We have to dig a little deeper. And there's general agreement on this. This is not really... um, anything controversial, what I'm saying to you next, okay, this is all pretty much non-controversial, which is why I'm going to move through it fairly quickly, but the idea is that baptism, and I'll share some scriptures as well, so let me get my uh, Logos Bible software going here, um, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, 3 and 4, this tells us like what baptism means, what it's about, uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the concept is that there's this picture of baptism. Now, I think Romans 6 is talking about what baptism means, not what water baptism is, but what it represents, this this new birth. And so you're baptized, you go down, that represents being buried with Christ, you come up, that represents being raised with Christ, raised in newness of life. So I'm identifying myself with the death and resurrection of Christ, saying, I believe, I'm dead to the world, I'm alive to Christ. That's, in, in short, what baptism is. It's the idea of repentance and faith toward Jesus and saying that what he did applies in your life. Um, but the next question then is, okay, if that's what baptism represents, already, you know, you've got to already be thinking that kind of causes a problem with infant baptism because infant bapt- infants aren't making these statements, these declarations that we are with baptism. But, that problem gets a little harder as we look at specific passages where baptism is commanded. Matthew 28, verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, here's his parting orders to the disciples, um, in Matthew anyways. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So there's three things you're to do, right? You are to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. Well, who's the them? Well, these are the them, whoever's responding to the gospel positively amongst all nations. They're getting baptized, taught, and they're being made disciples. Now, some think this creates a problem because if you tie these things together, making disciples with baptizing, that, that this is This means that you have to disciple someone before you can baptize them. But I think this is a confusion about what it means to disciple somebody. Someone becomes a disciple the day they choose to trust in Christ. The day they respond positively, say, I'm going to follow Jesus, right? (coughs) Pardon me. That person has now become a disciple. So now they are a disciple. So baptize them. And what? Teach them. You continue to disciple them, right? But they were a disciple the moment they believe. So once they believe, they can be baptized. That seems to be the context of Matthew 28. And we can give some other scriptures that support this. And this is, like I said, this is not really controversial at all. Um, Acts 2.38. I'm going to read this. We will come back to this passage a little bit later, but I'll read this now. Um, It says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you uh, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, the context of Acts 2 is that Peter has preached the gospel to this large crowd that's gathered at Pentecost. They heard the, the, the speaking in tongues and they're gathered in and they hear the gospel from Peter. And many people respond like, what do we do now, Peter? You're right. Jesus is the Messiah. Like, what do we do? He tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Every one of you. Right? In the name of Jesus Christ. So repent and be baptized. These are two commands. If the idea is that we're baptizing infants in this passage, if that's included, well, then how is it infants are repenting? That's a little confusing. It seems clear here that he's speaking to adults and he's telling, or at least uh, people who have the ability to repent. You know, they're old enough to make decisions. Um, anyway, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the, this promise, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Um, some people highlight for your children here. Um, I guess I'll just mention this now. It's a side note. It, I, I meant to share it later, but um, I'll just share it real quick. Um, this concept of for it's promised for you and for your children, for those who are far off. There's no legitimacy in interpreting this as for you and your infants. He's speaking of for you, the Jews, and your descendants, just like God spoke to them of them and their descendants. Many times in the Bible, the word children is used to reference descendants, not people who are of a certain age. And that seems to be the case in this passage. Um, for lack of time for today's message, I'll just move forward. Um, uh, anyways, and the promise would be repent and maybe baptized and you'll, you'll receive forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. That, that's the promise. And if that promise is for you and your children, well, then it doesn't work until you can repent. So again, infants seem ruled out in this passage. So um, there's a little bit more in this Acts um, passage. And let's go down to verse 40 and 41. Uh, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. So those who received his word, meaning that they believed the things that he was saying, meaning they were cognizant of the message that Peter preached, meaning by implication, this is not including uh, infants. So let's just say this though, the, the principle we're learning here isn't not infants. That's not the principle. That's not the main point. The main point here is believers, people who respond positively to the gospel message, those are the ones that you baptize. And that's the consistent teaching throughout the New Testament. We always see baptism as a response to faith. Baptism is always a response to faith, hearing the gospel, believing, receiving. Okay, now get baptized. You receive the message. And like I said, we pretty much all agree here, right? In spite of some historical blunders, I mean, and this is in the distant past, but there were times where, where some would try to force others to be baptized, like at point of death. Um, that is definitely not what we see in the New Testament. That is, that is this, this weird taking, trying to make some sort of mutated government church hybrid thing happen anyway. It's just wrong and it's not Christianity. Um, but we generally agree on this, right? You baptize people who believe in Jesus. That's the first thing you do when you get, when you get a, become a believer in Christ. And if you haven't been baptized, guess what? My news to you is get baptized. Like you should be baptized. If you're a believer in Jesus, you should be on your, on your path to being baptized as soon as you're able to. Um, whether that's a month or a week or a day, I don't think it should be years out. That, that doesn't seem to be the model we see in scripture. That's kind of a separate issue though. Uh, but I do want to encourage you to be baptized. If you're following Jesus, be plugged into a local fellowship and get baptized. It's actually really important as your, your growth in Christ. Um, so we always see baptism as a response to, to the gospel. It's believer's baptism. This is the principle everyone agrees on. Believers get baptized, or we baptize believers. And so already, that's, this is my conclusion with part one. We'll move on to part two in a sec. 
already we have a problem with infant baptism is it doesn't fit the model of we baptize people who believe. The clear model of the New Testament doesn't fit infant baptism because infants aren't choosing to trust in Christ um, unless, of course, they're highly intelligent and, you know, prodigies of their age, maybe. So if we limit ourselves to Scripture and what Scripture says about baptism, it seems to, by default, rule out the idea of infant baptism. But there's a lot more to talk about here. Um, And so that's going to lead us to our next question, our next series of verses we're going to go through. And it's about household baptisms in the book of Acts. It goes like this. And I'll, I'll pre- present it to you like I'm building the case. Like I'm, I'm the one who's um, the pedo-baptist or the, the one who says, in, you know, baptize infants. Hey, Mike, Cornelius's whole household was baptized. The centurion, his whole household. The Philippian jailer, when he got saved, his whole household got baptized, right? Which would include infants. Lydia, her whole household was baptized. Siphonus, his whole household was baptized by Paul, nonetheless. Surely this includes infants. Now, when I first heard this argument, uh, I, was, I found it impressive. I, I heard it and I thought, hey, um, yeah, there, I, I do remember reading about households in the book of Acts. And, and <clears throat> I found it impressive. But then when I examined the passages more carefully, I, I think that people too hastily go to these examples. And often those who are promoting um, infant baptism, they won't go to these examples at all. But many do. So I want to cover it. Pardon me while I mute the microphone to just cough for a second. All right. I'm not sick anymore, but these these coughs like linger after I'm... You guys like this when you, you get sick and you have like a lingering cough for like a month after you're not sick anymore. Um, it's been that way for years. That's just the way life is, I suppose. Um, household baptisms. Here we go. Let's look at them and let's look at them in the actual verses I'll put on your screen. And hopefully you can think it through with me. And if you disagree in the end, then... It doesn't bother me actually at all, <laughs> but I'm doing my part. So um, Cornelius, we read about this guy Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11. Peter goes to him and he's the first like real Gentile who's re- rec- publicly recognized as being included in the um, in the the gospel, the reception of the gospel of Christ without being becoming a Jew. It's a really interesting passage. Um, but Acts 11:14, let's highlight this because Peter goes and he preaches to everyone that's in Cornelius's place. And Acts 11.14 indicates that Peter is going to declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. So this is kind of the end of the passage, but I want to highlight this, that this is the first household reference in Acts. And it's a reference to how his whole household will in fact be saved. So when we get to Acts chapter 10, verse 2, we read this about Cornelius backing up a bit. Um, that he's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God continually, or prayed continually to God. He fears God with all his household. So this gives us a little bit of a uh, an insight. What does Acts 11 mean when it says, you and all your household will be saved? Does it mean infants? Well, in Acts 11.14, it says all household. In Acts 10.2, it says all his household. And it clearly refers to a group of people who fear God. Well, fearing God isn't really a quality infants have. Now, some will argue that they do, and I think that I personally think that's a little strange. Um, and I like to hear them build a careful case for that sort of thing. Um, but I would say, you know, no, I don't think infants are included in this concept. He feared God with all his household. So they're all recognizing that the God of Israel is the true God of creation. 
And this is the, he's not Jewish, but he believes. This is his starting point when he's going to hear the gospel of Christ. We also get from verse 7 that household probably also includes, though it may not include infants here, um, let's see, Acts 10, 7. Um, two of his servants he called. These are also called, let me see, maybe it'd help if I pulled up a different translation. These are also called household servants. I suppose it depends on the translation. I should have looked up the Greek to double check and make sure that this is a legitimate um, thing. Now I can't find the verse. Oh, because it dumped me there. Acts 10, 7. There it is. Um, two of his household servants. So this may be an indicator. I'm not going to look up the Greek right now. It takes too much time on my, during the live stream. But that may be an indicator that um, servants themselves are included in the concept of the household. And I think that this we can make clear later on when we talk about Caesar's household, that servants are actually included in the, um, in the household. So the household would actually be a lot bigger than just referring to um, his kids or something like that. Now, when Peter arrives, Acts 10.33, here's what he's told. Peter is told by them, See, uh, so I sent for you to come at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Cornelius describes everyone that's gathered, and they're all there to hear. Now we're going to say that infants have to understand Peter to be able to be present and included in the household comments of the book of Acts regarding to Cornelius. They're present to hear. And infants are obviously not hearing Peter in a comprehension sense. And hearing without understanding is, is meaningless. It's fruitless. It's not what he's talking about in the passage. So there's two options I see for the household of Cornelius. Either there's no infants there, which then all the passages make sense, all the verses. Or infants are there, but they're ignored because we just assume that they're not being talked about when you say household and what a household is doing because infants are just being drug along everywhere. They're not really making any choices. They're not making decisions. It's like when someone's got a little infant baby and they're like, hey, tell grandma we said hi. We all said hi. Our household said hi. They don't mean that like our three-day-old baby said hi and then grandma's like, what? The three-day-old baby's talking now? Like, obviously we just talk past the infants. We don't care about them. We just recognize they're not part of these inclusive terms. So those are the two options. There's no infants or they're not part of these inclusive terms when they say things like, we're all gathered to hear or the whole household will be saved. Then in uh, Acts 10.44, we get a little more detail on this stuff. And it makes it even harder to try to squeeze infants into the passage, to be honest. Acts 10.44 says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Remember he said they were all there to hear and they all heard the word. And the Holy Spirit fell on all the ones who heard the word. Did the Holy Spirit fall on the infants? And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the, even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, by the way, let me just slow down, right? The Holy Spirit's poured out and they heard them. Who's the them? The one on whom the Holy Spirit fell, which was all who heard, all of them. And they heard them speaking in tongues. So now we have infants speaking in tongues, if they're in this passage. And they're extolling God. So now we have infants speaking in tongues and extolling God. And if you want to quote the psalm, like, out of, out of the mouths of nursing, nursing infants, you've perfected praise. I think you're misunderstanding the psalm here and taking it beyond its intended meaning. Uh, verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have just received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Notice who gets to be baptized? The ones who receive the Spirit. There's, 
So either the infant spoke in tongues, heard the word, received the spirit, they did all of these above, all of the above, or they're not included in this passage. And so I think the most obvious thing is they were not included. Let's, let's look at the second section that we've got, and that's Acts 16, starting in verse 31. And this is about the Philippian jailer. This uh, jailer, he ends up getting saved. It's a pretty remarkable story, pretty wonderful conversion. But when he gets saved, look at what happens in verse 31. Um, here he's told, believe in the Lord Jesus, you and you will be saved, you and your household. So here's a message to this jailer, like you and your household, they will be saved, believe in the Lord Jesus. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, to all who were in his house, to all who were in his house. So here's another household passage and they spoke the word to all. And, and the implication here is that they're preaching to infants and thinking that infants can understand them and they make a decision about believing or rejecting and then somehow they know that they've received the word like because people who baptize infants never know if, if they've even if you preach the gospel to them it, it just gets weird right do they do they hear it and understand it and how do you know they understood it and they make do, are they making a decision to believe because the people that are being talked about here seem to be making those choices so they spoke to all who were in his house And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once. He and all his family, all his family, all his household are the ones who heard the word. So they were cognizant, not infants, it seems. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So now they're all rejoicing. They're all rejoicing. So the infants are hearing the word, understanding the word, choosing to believe and rejoicing and celebrating with with not just like, you know, like when you laugh and your baby laughs, it's not that kind of rejoicing. They're rejoicing that he had believed in God. So they have a reason in their mind. Oh, dad believes. And they're like a five day old baby or something. And that doesn't make any sense. Um, it just, we're pushing the text beyond what seems to be the obvious meaning. The conclusion here is if infants are in the house, they're ignored in the rejoicing, the hearing and the believing. It's reasonable to think they're also ignored in the baptizing. Um, it's weird to try to pick these passages apart to mean something different. The next one is uh, Acts, uh, also Acts chapter 6 verse 15. And this one's about Lydia and it's really, really short. Lydia, it says in verse 15, after she heard the word, um, after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they were on their way to go over and, you know, be with Lydia. Now, there's, what are the reasons to think that an infant is being baptized here? Keep in mind, we don't have any clear text of scripture saying that infants should be baptized. But what's the reason? The reasoning is the word household is here and we should just assume that households include infants. Even though we have, it seems, from the context of the other ones, other clearer, more detailed passages in Acts, that the word household just ignores infants or doesn't include them. I'm inclined to think they just ignore the infants when they're referring to households. So let's evaluate this a little more. Here's some reasons to think otherwise in Lydia's case. Household could naturally ignore infants. Okay, that I've already made the case for that. Um, also, infants are not mentioned specifically. It's assumed, and it's a lot to assume since you want to base a regulatory church practice on that assumption. There's a decent chance also that Lydia was unmarried or past childbearing or didn't have kids or that her kids were just full grown. And one of the reasons for this is she hosted them, which seems a little counterculture. After um, she was baptized, 
she's the one who invited them to her house to stay there. She was the hostess when normally it would have been the man. I mean, the, the husband doesn't seem to be involved here. He's not even mentioned anywhere in this passage. The whole household's mentioned, but not the husband specifically, whereas the husband's highlighted in the other stories when a, when a whole group of people convert. So maybe he wasn't around. Maybe he died. Maybe she was never married. That's, these are all possible things. I mean, she's a businesswoman. Um, and so if she doesn't have kids, though, then who's her household? Well, it could include the servants, or it could include grown children if, if, they're, uh, if the husband had passed away. Other relatives of hers, cousins, um, someone else she was taking care of. It could include any of the, any of the above. Also, there's more information. In Acts 6.14, we find out more about Lydia. We don't know much about her. We've got like two verses about her. But one of those verses says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Okay, so she's from a city, Thyatira. Well, she's currently in Philippi. That's like 300 miles between the two cities. She's from a city. She's on. It seems she's traveling because she's a seller of purple. So she's on a business trip. So we're 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 getting further and further removed from the idea that that she, they're brought into the home with infants. There just doesn't seem to be any good reason to think that there's infants there. And there's some legitimate considerations that seem to weigh against it. All right, the last one is Stephanus, and this is in First Corinthians one sixteen. <clears throat> Paul, speaking of um, who he baptized and didn't baptize, he gives a list of the ones he remembered baptizing in Corinth. And he says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. So he mentions baptizing the household of Stephanus. So this is a household baptism. We, we would agree there. There's no argument here. If you disagree with that, you're not reading the text, right? Um, so this is a household baptism. The question is, does it include infants? And <clears throat> if infants are included here, it's, it's vague. It's not specific. We're reading it out of a passing comment in a, in a short sentence. You know what I mean? It, it's like we're putting a lot into what's guesswork here, especially where the most clear passages referring to household, Cornelius and the jailer, seem to not include infants um, or ignore them if they're present. Let's look at this in a little bit more detail. Um, in First Corinthians... Um, 1615, we get some more information about this household of Stephanus. He says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So this household, they, they, inclusively, the whole household, it seems, they were converts, and they devoted themselves to service. Now Now it starts to be a real stretch to think that this is referring to infants. Because a whole, uh, the infants were converted and they were devoting themselves to the service of the saints. Notice that's uh, this past tense. They have devoted this something they were already doing. Um, so the options seem to again be if infants are included in household, then they were converts at the time. And they were devoted to the service of the saints. Or more likely, in- infants are simply um, over- overlooked in these passages referring to households. Because you just everyone knows that they're not included. Um, or there weren't infants present at all. Those, those seem like two better options on the text. So none of these things, none of these passages mention babies. Uh, none of them mention infants being baptized. Um, there's none of that's present in the text anywhere in scripture. And the ones that seem where they're trying to kind of find it in the text, some people do. Again, many bapti- baptism, paedo-baptism proponents don't use these passages because of the problems I've shared with you. But those who do, I think you need to be aware of these problems. Um, 
Other passages, though, support the idea that household does not imply infants. So let me let me share with you a few more, um, three more passages, just three verses real quick to suggest the idea that principally, in general, household doesn't seem to imply infants. John um, 4.53 says, The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed, and all his household. So here's where Jesus, Jesus brings a healing to, um, to this boy, and the father and the household all believe. And if we're saying infants are, are like by default, we just assume there's infants, well then we're assuming infants are believing, like that they're believing, which means infants can also reject Christ, right? If they can believe, they can reject. How do you, I don't know, this leads into all sorts of weird areas, if you ask me. In Acts 18.8, we have another passage related to this. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So again, here we have a, a whole household and they're all believing. They're all believing in the Lord. And it's beautiful. It's like they all got saved, but infants are obviously either not present or they're ignored in the passage. And then finally, um, <clears throat> Philippians 4.22. This is, this is probably not as relevant, I, I must admit, but I'm going to mention it because it references households. Um, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I mean, we're not suggesting that infants are greeting people here. I think that that would be a little bit of a stretch, um, to put it mildly. Okay, here's the point. Here's my conclusion. Here's my conclusion. Infant baptism is A, my first part, very unlike believer's baptism. So it needs some sort of special justification because it's not the same thing as the standard baptism rule of the New Testament. And B, or part two, it doesn't have any examples or instructions to do so in the New Testament. And the, the, the examples presented of households clearly fall short and consistently fall short. And when I see these consistent, like, you know, defeaters on all these household passages, I can't help but think that the Lord put it there on purpose. Um, at least that's my view of, of inspiration. What about <clears throat> number three, part three, what about parallels to circumcision? How uh, some say that baptism is like circumcision in some ways. And because you baptized uh, or you circumcised children in the old Testament uh, under the, under the Mosaic covenant, um, there was this circumcision of children even really given to Abraham before that, to say they're part of the covenant, right? That we should baptize our children to say they're part of the covenant too. Um, in this case, they call it covenant community. And th these people, it starts to get a little weird to me, to be completely honest. I get confused by this thinking. It sounds lofty and theological when it's being stated, but when you think about it carefully, I start to go, I'm confused by this because now you're saying that when I baptize my kid, they're part of the covenant. So are you saying they're saved by this baptism? And then what about kids that aren't baptized? And it raises all these weird questions that I don't know um, the answers to. Maybe someone who knows this line of reasoning better than I do could put that in the comments and enlighten us um, just as to how you answer these questions from that perspective, just so we can know it better. I'll pin it to the top if you do it um, in the comments. So um, is there some similarities, though, between baptism and, and uh, circumcision? I would say yes. There's definitely similarities. There's connections between them in some ways. Are they the same? No, absolutely not. Um, the Probably the strongest case someone can make is to say that um, circumcision is a sign of the covenant and baptism is a sign of the new covenant. And I'm going to say, let's just grant that. Let's grant that that's the case. Um, and let me share with you my problems, even if that's the case, which I'm in inclined to be cool with that. Like that sounds pretty good to me, even though I don't think scripture makes that really clear 
I don't think we have clear scripture to establish that fact, but it seems consistent. So I'm inclined to grant it, and let's just say it's the case. So <clears throat> does circumcision make a case for infant baptism as it relates? Um, here are some differences. Uh, circumcision was commanded for all infants as their primary application of circumcision. Right? That that was the that was the Old Testament um, rule. Right? Everyone gets baptized primarily eight days old. They get circumcised. This was commanded of infants specifically. Baptism is commanded of all believers, and that alone rules out infants because it's commanded of all believers. That's the idea. You believe and you get baptized. It's a response to faith in Christ. Circumcision was to be done regardless of belief. This is an interesting point. Whether you believed or not, you were to be circumcised. It was just part of being a descendant. That was the idea. Now, you were in trouble if you didn't believe. You were in trouble with God if you rejected the truth of, of, of God. But you were to be circumcised whether you believed or not. Baptism is certainly not commanded to be done to everybody who is um, potentially going to be in Christ. Um, we'd be baptizing everybody's kids and everybody. But baptism is only for believers. It may be that some people were intentionally required to be circumcised. In fact, I think it is. Um, even as adults, they were required. Abraham's household was circumcised, right? You, you, you all got to be circumcised. Like it or not, this is the way it's going to be. Yet, baptism is never, never uh, forced on people in the New Testament. If they're allowed to be baptized, they're actually permitted to be baptized because of their faith in Jesus, but it's never forced upon anybody. Every descendant of Abraham was required to be baptized, but circumcision is not like this. There's no requirement. It, it's a privilege. Um, so there's a big difference there. Baptism, of course, is better and it's different in different ways. But let me highlight a couple. If you're going to say that because we would circumcise children or they would circumcise children, we should circum or we should baptize babies, if that's the parallel, then we should say that we're going to draw the other parallels too. And this is where it gets really problematic. Under circumcision, only boys receive circumcision, right? Partially because that's what circumcision is, right? Only boys receive it. But baptism is for boys and girls. But if I'm going to say that it's parallel, then why don't we only baptize boys? Oh, well, Mike, that's obviously wrong. Well, where do we have a specific New Testament command to baptize women? Right? Well, no. But we, well, we do have examples, though, don't we? we Lydia was baptized, right? So but clearly baptism is for women. So there's a clear break from the, from the connection of circumcision. Uh, circumcision has specific commands, for instance, for infants. Baptism does not. We know infants were circumcised. And that they were required to be circumcised. Not so with baptism. We don't know of any infants that were circumcised, nor do we have any command requiring them to be circumcised. Circumcision is a national issue, commanded regardless of faith, but baptism is a faith issue. And that's, that's when you do it, is when you believe. I, I think that there's clearly some differences here. And if, you, if, if it boils down to circumcision is done to kids, so baptism should be too. That parallel fails. Because we don't then apply the other, you know, similar types of elements of circumcision. We don't apply those to baptism. Because baptism and circumcision are different things. So there are similarities. They're both like an outward ritual sign signifying covenant participation. I, I think that that's true. But if we say that this parallel means we can import infant circumcision into infant baptism, then we have to baptize only boys and we have to force it on other people, especially like if it's your household servants, force it on them, you know, force it on people that work for you. <laughs> and, and this is not the case. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm confused by this. I, I do not think that this is made clear by scripture. I think that, that this part three here reveals that there's a kind of reasoning that's like starts with lofty theological principles 
and then comes into really um, uh, really nuanced uh, applications that aren't really drawn from those principles but can be made to connect in a way that is a little bit fuzzy and that that's my honest impression and for you guys to consider and think about obviously you need to make your your own decision about what you think scripture is saying about this and you need to live out your conscience before the lord on this topic um, but that's what it seems like to me so let me uh, this is part four now i'm gonna go to other verses people use other verses people use um, in trying to promote infant baptism and one of the ones this is less popular in the more scholarly or you know thinking people about these issues I, I don't mean to put it that way it sounds condescending i don't mean it that way i'm just saying people who use this particular verse i think um haven't thought about it i don't know how else to put it uh, luke 18 verse 15 luke 18 15 oh let me get you there <clears throat> jesus is interacting uh with the people and it says in verse 15 now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is used by some as a text to represent baptism um, of children. I think that most of you have already noticed the problem. This verse doesn't mention or include or imply baptism. Jesus touches them. He blesses them, prays for them, and tells us of God's love and care for children. And then draws a parallel about how we need to come to God as children, but there's no mention of baptism. This is what uh, I heard uh, John MacArthur call this a dry verse. This is a dry verse because there's no water involved. So this is not include baptism in this passage. I, I think that that seems abundantly clear. Um, there was a debate between Charles Spurgeon and another uh, person. I don't remember his name, but they decided one was going to promote infant baptism and then Charles Spurgeon, he was not. And the one who was going to promote infant baptism, he went first in the debate and he brought up this scripture, Luke 18, and he said, suffer the little children to come unto me. And so when Spurgeon got up, he brought his scripture and he said um, for his scripture, there was a man from Luz whose name was Job and then sat down and his opponent said, said, that scripture has nothing to do with baptism. And Spurgeon looked at him and said, neither does yours. Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> this just has nothing to do with baptism. Um, I'm supposed to come like them, dependent, trusting, but, but it just, there's just no reference to baptism. Let children come to me. It doesn't mean you baptize them. I mean, why not let them be elders too in churches and plant, be missionaries and send them off to plant churches? Let the, why not? Just let them come. It applies to anything you want it to at that point. Um, I think that that's just a silly verse to use, to be honest. First uh, Corinthians, verse seven, verse seven, chapter seven, verse thirteen. <clears throat> this is a tricky one. This is a tricky one. It's about marriage. Here's what we can agree, right? First Corinthians seven is about marriage. That's the context of the chapter. And um, and as we read here in verse thirteen, it says, "If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever." And he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. She should not divorce him. Side note for those who were part of the, the Hebrew roots movement and you want to obey the law of the Old Testament. This occurred to me as I was studying this today. Total side note has nothing to do with today's topic. Um, uh, under the New Testament, believers are told, do not divorce your unbelieving, no matter how you know unbelieving they are, your unbelieving spouse. And yet, 
um, Israel, there were times where God actually would have them divorced with like Moabite, you know, women and things like that. And so there were times when God's doing it because of what's going on with Israel, because what God is doing amongst that people group. But may I also say that those commands were for them and for a time. And here we have a difference where you, I, I feel like if you want to say you're under the law today, you have to have some confusion on how to apply First Corinthians 7. Um, so that's a side note there. Um, but yeah, she should not divorce him. Stay with him. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. They're holy. And so th this is this is um, where I think some people are reading a theological meaning or, or, you know, into a word. And that's the word holy. The word holy we usually think of holy, only God is holy. Well, obviously the word has multiple uses. It has the whole, like what's called a semantic domain, which is there's these different ways of using the same word. Like I use the word um, uh, green and I can be talking about, I have a green thumb, which means I'm good with plants or I'm green at this, which means I'm new and I'm inexperienced at something. Or he was green with envy, which is reference to something entirely different or show me the green and I'm talking about money, you know, or that tree is green and I'm just referring to a color. So these, you know, this word has a, has a lot of uses. And so the word holy has different uses as well. This here's referring, I believe, to some, some kind of sanctification, some kind of like spiritual benefit happening in their lives because of the presence of the mother and wife still being in the family because the divorce has not happened. So don't read too much of a theological definition into the word holy here. Um, and I'll, I'll get into it more. And then we'll talk about why this is not about infant baptism. This, it's weird that this verse is used for that purpose. Um, really weird. Uh, and I'll explain why right now. So holy in what sense? Well, whatever sense the children are made holy, also we see in verse 14, the husband is also made holy. Well, we know the husband's not a believer because um, he goes on to say in verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Wait, well, he just said, He's, he's holy, the husband's made holy by her presence, yet this is all in hopes that he might get saved. So he's clearly not saved. This isn't saying that the husband or kids are saved. It's talking about a spiritual benefit because they have a godly mom in the home and a godly wife in the home. And this changes the whole home for everybody. And so that's a beautiful benefit, but it has nothing to do with salvation. Not directly. Um, so here's the, the principle you can get, right? Um, in whatever sense the husband is made holy, well, in that sense, the children are made holy because it's by the same, you know, cause. It's the presence of the wife. We know the husband's holiness is not salvation because in verse 16, it might result in his salvation. Whereas he's made holy or sanctified. He, he's having a spiritual blessing or benefit in his life by having a godly wife. Um, maybe it will lead him to Christ, maybe not. So, yeah, we can actually be fairly certain here that this verse, though, has nothing to do with baptism. Nothing to do with baptism. Why? Because in that culture, you cannot say, you cannot say that every child that was in a mixed marriage that Paul was writing to, right, with a believing mom and unbelieving dad, you can't say that every one of those kids had been baptized. But Paul just blanket says that all of them are experiencing this sanctification. And you certainly wouldn't say the husband was baptized, yet he's still experiencing this sanctification or holy impact in his life because of his bride. So baptism seems off the table here. This has nothing to do with baptism. 
And if you're going to say, but because they're holy, I should baptize them, this just gets weird. You're just forcing it on the text. In fact, it would imply that a blessing is upon the children of a believer, whether or not the child is baptized, just as it is upon their spouse, whether or not the spouse is even saved. That's the implication of the first Corinthians seven. So I, I see has no impact, uh, just no relation to baptism, infant baptism in any way, shape or form. Um, Yep. Okay. A brief word on church history. This is part five. Part five. And then we're going to go to your guys' questions. Brief word on church history. Um, Church history is huge. It is massive. And there are tomes and stacks and stacks of books of all the stuff people have said in church history. And often people will go into church history and they'll pull out just the quotes that prove their points. And they'll present it to you on on YouTube or on on their articles or on whatever. And they'll present it to you as though their selected quotes from church history represent all of church history. This happens all the time. I see it a lot in Catholic apologetics in particular, but also in regards to this infant baptism issue. They'll usually jump to the 3rd century, 4th century and on, select quotes and say, see, infant baptism. Um, But let me just mention a few things. This this is not the whole story. They're skipping a lot. (laughs) Like a lot, a lot. Like they're skipping over a hundred years of content after the apostles, let alone the time of the apostles and the texts at hand. They're just skipping it. There was a lot of silence on the topic of infant baptism. The first time someone mentions it, they're actually arguing against it in church history. Um, But the point here is this. Uh, It's a whole other story to dig into all that and try to unravel it all and unpack it all. But I don't care in a sense. I mean, I am not bound to church history. This takes me off the word of God if I'm going to argue that Christians have to do it because Christians a thousand or five hundred or eighteen hundred years ago did it. I'm I'm off the word of God here. I want to let the word of God be my authority. And I want to share with you one warning from Jesus. He was constantly, constantly on people's cases for doing this, for taking the tradition of men and using it to overrule or replace or to even come alongside the instructions of God. And he says in Mark 7, 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This was a serious problem. And, and, you, and you can think of it in your head all the times he's talking to Pharisees, Sadducees, and he's like, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You have the commandments of men and you teach it like it's the commandments of God. And so this is a concern. I say if you can't prove it in scripture, then you can't put it on Christians. That's my idea with theology. and I'm not alone in this, right? Sola Scriptura. That's the idea. Prove it with Scripture. And if you can't, admit it. And then say, nope, I'm basing this on church tradition. And then, we guess what we'll have to do? If, if I'll allow that, if I'm going to go with church tradition, we'll have to really read what they all said and not just take select quotes and be manipulated, which is unfortunately a lot of times what happens. So before I go to your guys' questions, and um, uh, AJ, you can send them. Oh, you already have. Um <clears throat> What I want to do, though, is mention a couple things. Um, if you were baptized as an, as an infant, um, I think that your parents probably were just trying to honor God and wanted God to bless you. And I don't see anything wrong with those motives. And I think it's good that they wanted to honor God. But if you wanted to ask my personal opinion for what it's worth, I see no harm in going and being baptized as a believer. Um, and uh, But may God guide you and give you wisdom in that. I, I do think that that would be a believer's baptism. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, what if you've already baptized your child? I say allow them to make a choice later and perhaps, this is just my counsel for what it's worth. Take it with a grain of salt, of course. It's just one guy's advice. But my suggestion would be allow them to make a choice later 
um, and to be baptized when they're old enough to, to have made a decision about that. Um, and if you are unbaptized, if you have not been baptized yet, you are believing in Jesus Christ. You absolutely need to go get baptized. It's an act of obedience to Christ. It's not for your salvation. It's for your obedience to follow Jesus. And it helps you get plugged into a local body of Christ, which uh, you really need to be. Uh, we need each other in Christ. God didn't, he might have made you a finger, but you need the hand. He might have made you an elbow, but you need the arm. You know, we need each other very much. Um, even though... Just like in marriage, there's all these things fighting to pull us apart. Just in the same thing in church, there's all these things fighting to pull us apart. We need it. Um, so finally, I'll just say this before I go to your questions. Um, infant baptism is not just the, the idea of um, uh, allowing people to have a behavior like infant baptism in the church or something. We're institutionalizing it. Once you start doing it in a church, everyone's going, oh, I better get my baby baptized. And... We're institutionalizing something that seems like it's got no scriptural grounding. And even when we try to find implications of it, it's really stretching the text, in my opinion. And so, yeah, I don't think we can do it. I don't think we can do it. Um, my opinion, for what it's worth, not willing to divide on the issue. If, if I uh, had a church where they were baptizing infants um, and that was the only fellowship around me and then I was part of it, I would still be part of it. I wouldn't divide over it but I wouldn't be getting my baby baptized um, and we would have to see if they could be okay with that. Um, all right, so here's the questions. Um, from Our Wholesome Home. What verses back up the age of accountability? Are children considered children of God before age of accountability? <clears throat> I think that um, I'm going to do a video on this one day and so I can't just rattle it off the top of my head. Um, so I would recommend you guys doing your own research. I, sometimes I know I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to come up with the, the good answer I want to give you off the top of my head right now, especially I've been so invested in this other topic. Um, but one day I'll plan on doing a video about it. Um, the age of accountability, it, though I would say this, I don't think it's an age like 7, 2, 9, 12, 18, or, you know, 35 or something. I think rather it's God knows exactly what you're accountable for because he knows exactly what you can do, what you can't do, what you've been exposed to, what decisions you've made. And so I think it, it's, it's measured accountability for every individual. And so that would include when you have no accountability because you have no ability to respond to anything. In which case, my opinion is that they're going to be with the Lord when they, uh, uh, if they die at that age. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, first last says, does Galatians 2.21 mean that we, when we add works to faith as a requirement for salvation, like baptism, we're not saved? Um, <clears throat> Galatians 2.21, let's bring up that passage. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, to be really clear here, he's talking about the law, not just like any works at all. Hold up though. Some of you are getting irritated by me. I'm just giving the text it's due. I'll draw application to any works at all in a moment. Uh, but he's speaking of, of adding the law. When you add the works of the law, um, you nullify the grace of God effectively. So if I'm going to be, I'm going to say, oh, I need Jesus, but I also have to obey the law in order to be saved. Okay, you are effectively rejecting the free gospel of free grace. And you are setting up your own righteousness. And God's going to reject that. And so when you add baptism as a work that's required for salvation, it looks to me like it's doing something parallel to this. It really does look to me that way. Uh, and and I, don't know, I don't know how to respond, to be honest, because I'm going, if you say I got to be baptized to be saved, 
that feels like a work for salvation. Now, it's not the law exactly, but it feels like you've just added a different non-law related work for salvation. But I'm saved by grace alone through faith apart from works, according to Ephesians. So um, I do think it's a serious problem. Um, Adora Bengals says, question, Mike, I was wondering if no one ever hears about Jesus, do they go to hell? Also, if I'm supposed to tell someone about Jesus and I don't, is it my fault that they're in hell? <clears throat> Two really big questions. Um, so, Adora Bengals, um, if, if someone in the, in the live chat could share the link, maybe one of the mods can, because I don't know if everybody can share links in the live chat. If you can share a link to my video, what about those who never hear the gospel? Because I go through all the scripture and I really labored to answer that question in great detail. And um, you need the nuance there. This question has to be answered in detail and with nuance, and I try to give it in that in that answer. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, hopefully that'll be in the live chat. And if if not, I'll put it in the um, video description after I'm done with the live stream. Also, are you if you're supposed to tell someone about Jesus and you don't, is it your fault that they're in hell? I would say it's only ever the person's fault if they if they end up in hell. It's their fault because they're accountable for their decisions and their responses to what God has revealed. We also know God is working on them independent of you. Okay, but that's not the whole story. It is also true that if God tells you go and share with that person and you close your mouth, then you were supposed to share and you closed your mouth. Like that matters. That means something. And so I don't think that we can ignore that. Ezekiel talks about this um, where it's the watchman on the wall passage and he's like hey if there's a watchman on the wall I'll just paraphrase and um, and he sees the enemy and he doesn't sound the alarm then he's at fault for what happens next so I would say that there is some measure of of guilt in the in in the life and I don't know a way around this I don't like this right because guess what how many of us are might now feel guilty? But that's just because I want to escape guilt doesn't mean I can deny reality. Like there seems to be some measure of guilt for those who never share their faith with the people around them. And I mean, if I'm going to hold that me sharing my faith can really transform someone's life, well, then what am I going to have to also believe about not sharing it? And so that that just seems to be the natural consequence of of believing that. And I um. I, I do trust that God can still bring to salvation. He's going to bring, you know, ultimately God's plan is going to be done. His will is going to be done. But I, I think that what I do matters. And I try to live like everything I do actually matters. And I'm not just, um, a, a, you know, an automaton living out a life that won't have any difference. Nothing would be different if I was here or not. I, I think it really does matter. And I think that the Bible seems to indicate it does. Um, let's see. Um, the similar question, Neil Wallen says, do infants and young kids all go to heaven if they die before accepting Christ? I think that they do. And um, that's my short answer. Again, I'd like to do a video on that topic sometime. Uh, Benjamin Handelman says, what age does Mike believe is the minimum to get baptized? And what would be the proper age of reason for it? I think that it's individual. It's completely individual. I, and I, I can't say that I have a rule that you have to obey. And the New Testament doesn't give us that rule. It says believing. So I, I would say, are you believing? <laughs> like, are you old enough where you're believing? Okay, then you can be baptized. Like, it, to be as strictly biblical as possible, that would be the rule. And it would be different for each individual because one person, people, you know, they, they develop and they progress at different rates. Um, Barely Protestant says, where does scripture say women can receive communion or show them receiving communion? Also, would you be willing to have a brotherly debate on it? No, I'm sorry. I've had 
three or four debate offers in the last week. I'm sorry. I'm just not interested. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude. I just debates take a massive amount of time and I get a lot of debate offers. And so I'm going to be very picky about which ones I say yes to. Um, and it'll be few and far between because it takes me away from my regular work that I want to produce um, when I focus on debates. Um, so clarification for my question. My point is that women aren't shown to receive communion in scripture, yet no one denies they can receive it. Um, well, I mean, here, here's a different issue. I mean, when we, when we hear about um, whole, whole groups of people in Corinth gathering together and having these feasts where they're having communion, are you thinking women aren't there? I mean, when he, when he greets people, he greets women, and he talks about how they were all gathering together with communion, and women are in the list of the greetings. So I think that that implies that they are there. And it seems a bit of an odd question, to be honest. Um, yeah, so I, I think women are absolutely part of communion in the early church. And Jesus kind of set a, a, an example of this. Um, rabbis did not have women disciples, um, yet Jesus, he had women who were disciples of his and following him. And... I think rabbis didn't have women disciples. I'm trying to remember where I, where I learned that from, but I can't. So I think that that's the case. I want to say it cautiously, though. Um, <clears throat> but there's one other issue, which is, which is this. When, when Jesus was... You guys know the Mary-Martha story, how um, one of them, I think it was... Um, Mary was the one working and Martha was the one sitting. I always get the names confused. Anything starts with the same letter, two M's. <coughs> Anyways, one was sitting and the other one's working and, and they're like, Lord, tell my sister to help me work. And he's like, no, no, no. I think it's Mary. Mary's chosen the better part. And here Jesus is approving of this woman who's not helping serve people. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus and being taught. And that was like revolutionary in their time. And Jesus is affirming that, that this woman is a disciple of his and can sit under his teaching. Anyway, I'm just saying Jesus was, was counterculture. This doesn't mean that Jesus... You can you can uh, say everything about Jesus that modern feminism wants to say, um, certainly not. But um, but that is the case. So, um, okay, <clears throat> here's a question, um, dear Mike. I love your stuff. Keep up the awesome work. I'm 44 years old and I don't fully understand baptism. Should I wait to be baptized, or is it okay to do it now? Um, I don't think you should wait, but I think you should connect yourself to a pastor or a leader, a spiritual leader who can walk you through the process and ask them and say, hey, help me out. I'd like to be baptized. I'm a believer. Help me understand baptism. I want to go. I want to move forward. That would be my recommendation. Do it personally. Do it in connection with real, a real human being, you know, and, and, and have them walk you through it. And um, yeah, go for it. Um, Jake Livingstone says, why should we deny infant baptism when the church held this view for 1,500 years? Uh, here we go. Here's the church history argument. Um, especially in light of Christ's promise in John 16, 13, to send the Spirit to guide them into all truth. Um, he didn't promise that that would happen in church councils 500 and 1,000 and 1,500 years later. Um, that's just taking it out of context. Um, the relevance of John 16, 13 is that the early church taught infant baptism, so Christ's promise didn't see. Okay, I'm just going to, it's a long question. I'm just going to summarize it this way. Um, this question probably came in before I did my little segment on church history. I'd ask you to go back and listen to that really quickly again. I don't think church history trumps scripture. I think scripture seems to speak clearly enough on this issue. And church history is not represented carefully. And notice how in the question, we're only going back 1,500 years. Well, why are we starting from 500 AD? Why is this editing of church history? What about 100 AD? Isn't that like the most important part of church history that we read about in the book of Acts? 
Uh, what about 200 AD? Um, what about between 100 and 200? What about this period right in here where we don't read about infant baptism at all in church history? And so, yeah, there's just, yeah, I'll move on. Um, Stephen Madrison says, uh, I'm debating a Mormon on James 2. I, uh, I mentioned that Galatians and Romans prove my position on faith alone, but he says, the works mentioned by Paul are different than the works in James 2. Thoughts? Um, I have a video on the topic of James chapter 2, and I think I call it like Catholic versus, what did I say, Protestant view? Anyway, but anyways, James chapter 2, if you'd search in, you know, just on YouTube, Mike Winger, James 2, should pop right up. And there's actually a teaching I have on the passage, and it deals with this exact issue. It will relate to Mormonism, I believe, because the Catholic view and the Mormon view are going to be using the passage in similar ways. Uh, Jacob Seiler says, are infants born guilty of Adam's sin? And if so, why shouldn't babies be baptized? Um, this isn't my position. Um, if you think that, uh, well, you could think that they're born guilty, but that they're forgiven by the grace of Christ. Now, if you want to add baptism in there, you could say um, that, okay, they're born guilty and they'll be forgiven by the grace of Christ if they're baptized. Now we have a really strange conundrum because we have infants who are all unsaved unless they're baptized and if they're baptized, even though they're making no free will choices of their own, they're being baptized. Now they're going to be saved and that leaves the rest unsaved. This seems to cause more problems than it solves for those who want to promote infant baptism. Um, Corey Maxwell says, Hey Mike, should a person who is falsely converted and baptized after realizing their hypocrisy and being saved be baptized again as a mark of true conversion? Thanks. Um, Corey, um, that's a tough question. And I think that should be held individually with the, with, with a leader, like a Christian godly person who can walk you through it. I do think that if it's just nagging at you, if it's just, just messing you up and you're like, I would just feel so much better if I could get baptized and say, this is me for real committing to Christ. Then I, you know, my counsel would be, then, then let's baptize you, you know, then let's do this. Um, but there are some who want to use baptism as a band-aid to alleviate their conscience when what really needs to happen, and they, and they want to get baptized lots of times, <laughs> and what really needs to happen is they just need to finally trust that Jesus is enough and they're forgiven. And they need to not be hanging it on this uh, outward sign, but hanging on the faith in Christ where he does all the work for you. And so that's why I recommend getting a leader to, to you know, a, a godly Christian person to kind of walk a person through such a thing. Um, okay, we're almost done for tonight, but uh, Joe Bovitt says, can Mike do a video on the early church? Some people seem to falsely believe that everyone believed the same thing for 1,500 years. Truth is, there was division in the first century. Bingo. Thanks, Joe. That's true. And oftentimes, that's why the, the selective quoting of, of who we call church fathers, who, guess what? They weren't the fathers of the church. We call them that because we're from way later. But that's like saying that, like, um, you know, Bill Clinton is one of the fathers of America. He, well, he's closer to the beginning of America than a lot of the church fathers are to the beginning of the church. So it, it's, it's a weird kind of misnomer in there. But yeah, they weren't necessarily in agreement. Um, I don't know if I'll do a video on that because it would be an awful lot of research. It's something I've thought about. Um, so maybe in the future. Thanks for the recommendation. Um, all right. And I think I'm just scanning these little last questions. One seems to be a duplicate. So... Um, um, yeah, those are mostly questions I kind of answered already. So the last one here is uh, Bradley Wilcox. Why do we get baptized? My understanding is it's for the remission of sins. I think we get baptized to represent 
the remission of sins that we have in Christ. It's an outward expression of an inward reality, but there's clear texts of scripture that say people are saved before they're baptized. So it's not as though your baptism saves you. And if you guys want more on that, I did a debate and it's a crazy long debate and I have a link for it in the video description or, or I will if I haven't put it there yet. But it's between me and um, a friend of mine, Dean Meadows, on the question, does baptism save? And it's a four-hour debate, so it's so long that what I did was I made timestamps. So if there's specific scriptures you're looking for us to discuss, like you can click a timestamp and go right to that verse so that it can make the debate more usable. Because who's going to listen to a four-hour debate? Um, <coughs> we didn't mean for it to go that long, but we didn't have a regulator. So just two debaters going at it forever. Um, so thank you guys so much for joining. This has been the Tuesday live stream. If you haven't yet, um, if you want to grow in your knowledge of Christ and your ability to know the word and defend the word, I recommend you subscribe and you start looking at my over 300 videos that are available for free online and all my content's free. If you love this ministry and you'd like to support it, there's a link below. Or you can go to BibleThinker.org. That's my website. And I'm excited to announce that hopefully soon we're going to be releasing the Bible Thinker app for your smartphone. It'll be a free app that has organized and in playlists, either video or audio from all the studies and stuff that I have up here on YouTube. Very excited. It's been sponsored by a, a business owner who just loves this ministry. And because he's taking care of the app, we're able to just provide it for free. So how cool is that? Um, so God is good. Rest your hope and trust in Christ and test everything with the word. If you disagree with me, slowly think about it and figure out why and try to base it on scripture, not a selected version of history. Take care.